Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication strategies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm Frank Gruber, co-founder and co-CEO of Established, co-founder of Established Ventures, and the team behind the Startup of the Year community and this very podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. It's a sunny day here, I have to say, so I'm enjoying that. It's been, uh, can start, kind of starts feeling spring. Spring is in the air, so starting to feel good about that. Hopefully you are as well, wherever you are. Anywho, uh, on this episode, we're going to hear from uh, Jesse Middleton. He's a general partner at Flybridge, co-founder of the Community Fund, and he's going to be talking with Matt Hunkler of uh, Powder Keg. He's the, the CEO of Powder Keg, also the founder of that organization, which has been a longtime partner of Established in the start of the year. Um, we've produced and worked with him on some events uh, for years, and uh, he's been you know, a strong supporter back, going, dating back all, all the way back to the, the tech cocktail, tech co days, so... It's been a while, and I'm glad that he could join us here today. The two are going to talk about a ton of different things, including building a brand and community, and uh, all of which took place at our ninth annual Start of the Year Summit. So uh, for those of you who don't know, though, the Community Fund is a $5 million early-stage uh, fund that focuses on, focuses on uh, community-driven companies that, uh, through their, their company, they're actually building community at the center, and in doing so, their belief is that they will build a better company and and build unicorns. So pretty interesting thesis. And uh, they've been doing this for about a year or so and invested in a bunch of companies. So uh, that's the community fund. And then Flybridge is a, a seed stage venture firm focused on supporting founders, leveraging the power of the community as well, which makes a lot of sense. And uh, they've got about $700 million under management across five funds and five pre-seed funds. And so Jesse's a, a partner over there and, and obviously is, is looking at a lot of companies focused on community. Okay, now let's jump right in with Jesse Middleton and Matt Hunkler. Jesse, you have an awesome career, uh, and obviously community is something that's near and dear to my heart, just being focused on an online community. Um, I would love to maybe uh, skip around a little bit, but figured we could maybe go back a little bit uh, to earlier in your career um, and talk just a little bit about the, the WeWork days. I'd love to hear just kind of how that all came about, because I know you're already working in tech a little bit, um, you had you had done some more uh, kind of engineering type of roles um, and been you know exposed to a lot of different products. What was it about WeWork and and how did that even come about in the first place? Yeah, so <clears throat> wow, it is. First off, thanks for having me here. Uh, this is the first live event I've done since pre-COVID. Uh, so I, maybe it is for everyone here, but I, for me, I was like so excited to come down. I just slacked my team before this with a photo. I was like, look where I am. Um, so, so thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I actually started my career as a technologist. So I was an engineer. I worked with Cisco, Juniper hardware. So a nerd and I loved breaking things, putting them back together. And one of the things I found early in that was a community, which was not a buzzword at the time or in every pitch deck that I see now, but a community of other like hacker minded people, right? Trying to take things apart, put them back together. And so I had been a moderator in these forums, for those of you who were on the internet a while ago, things like IRC, uh, which, I don't know, by a show of hands, who was on IRC? Yes, there are only a few of you in the room, and I'm really excited. Uh, this was like pre-Slack, for those of you who now are in communities. Um, 
and so that was sort of something that I was a part of, but I didn't really know what it, you know what it meant to create a community. So fast forward a number of years, um, I wound up in New York City running tech for a public company called Live Person. Uh, similarly, I got entrenched in the tech community in New York and a thing called NYC Tech, um, and connected with these amazing founders. New York City at the time in 20, 2009, 2010 was this growing tech hub, but there were only two public companies at the time based in New York City that were founded in New York City. Live Person was one of them. So I got a lot of calls from investors saying, hey, I'm backing this little startup here. Uh, can you help them out? Because you have a real company in New York and everybody's telling them they had to move to San Francisco. And so from there, started my journey into building communities in the city. And the story of meeting Adam Miguel at WeWork, uh, and this is a true story, I met them via a Craigslist ad. How many of you have used Craigslist? All right, great. All right, so now we're on the same page. So uh, I really did meet them through a Craigslist ad. I left Live Person, start a little startup, raised some angel money for it, and was looking to build a space where a handful of friends who are doing the same thing at the same time, not unlike the people that are members here, uh, could work together. And in the city, that really didn't exist at scale. There was a little group called uh, NY, NYC Work or something, um, which was really cool and, and sort of didn't exist at scale. And my buddy Matt and I went on Craigslist to look for office space. And we saw this ad for WeWork NYC, boutique, cool office spaces in Soho. And I was not cool enough to have worked in Soho. Uh, and so I went down to visit and they really were cool boutique offices in Soho. The ad was true. And I got to meet Adam, who many of you have probably read the books, seen the TV shows, the movies, the God knows what else. Or maybe you've had the fortunate uh, opportunity to spend some time with Adam. He's a special guy. Um, he was always that special guy with that magnetic personality. And within about 15 minutes of giving the tour, he said, look, I know nothing about tech. I'm a dyslexic entrepreneur. I don't even own a computer. I just have my smartphone. You guys are cool, nerdy tech guys. This like came back full circle. I was still a nerdy tech guy. And he said, and you know all these other small startups in the city, and we want all those people to work inside of WeWork. So what if we partner together? We'll give you the second floor we're opening. You bring, you know, 40, 50 of your friends in and we'll build this community together. And that was the beginning of our relationship. We signed an agreement. We became partners in a thing called WeWork Labs. And that was our startup incubator project under WeWork. To this day, that still exists as a brand. Um, it's had over its journey probably 100,000 members around the globe now. But at the time, we started with 47 people, uh, which is kind of an inflated number because I was one of those 47. So it was really 46 paying customers. But we always said 47. Um, so we started with 47 people and it grew from there. And that really set me off on this path of thinking about how we develop community around a common goal and mission and provide value to each other. You mentioned the New York Tech Meetup, which is, is sort of infamous in that startup community there. Uh, I would imagine plugging into the community there, growing the New York Tech community, um, probably learned some things that applied to what you did at WeWork and how you kind of fostered the community there. What were some of those lessons thinking about Tampa Bay here and people from all over the country who are in different tech hubs around the country, what are some of the lessons that maybe they could learn that you applied at WeWork? Yeah, so interestingly enough, when I was in college, one of my fraternity brothers started one of the very first co-working spaces in the country, a place called Indy Hall in Philadelphia. Uh, if there are some OG co-working people that he, he and Chris Messina and Tara Hunt and all these people were this early group that coined co-working. And, uh, and I got to be a member there. So I got to actually see what co-working was 
I didn't know it was going to be some phenomenon and some multi-billion dollar opportunity, but I thought it was neat. Um, and so the New York Tech Meetup, as you said, and I can't wait till they do another thousand person New York Tech Meetup. I don't know when that'll be possible in real life. But uh, yeah, I mean, what, what came out of the New York Tech Meetup and out of great communities anywhere around the globe is the is sort of they're sort of twofold. One is all of the relationships that are formed there are authentic and they're tied to a common mission or goal. And so while a company can be built with a common mission, to develop something that is bigger than a individual company, a movement, is something that takes a lot more care and thoughtfulness. It's not something where you can just throw a bunch of people in a room and hope they meet each other. You know, there's all these apps now for meeting other people in your Slack community or at an event, companies like Meetsy and others. It's so necessary to get that right. The early members need to really be authentically a part of each other's lives in that community. And communities have this incredible flywheel where every member brings, you know, 10 other people into the fold and they all come in with the same intention, right? They come in with the same mission and those people make connections and they bring in 10 more people and 10 more. And what's even even more interesting to me is that those people will then maintain those relationships even as people leave. So since the New York Tech Meetup is probably now 15 years old, I meet people all over the world who have been a part of that group. They've come and they've participated and that common bond continues to bring them back together. When they see each other on an airplane, in a Slack or at an event, they wind up saying hi and they have this common ground to start. And you see this at a company level too. For anybody that works for a big company, if you ever wind up somewhere and you work at, I'll pick a, you know, Microsoft, you know, you have this common culture at Microsoft. There's a certain way of working, there's a certain way of communicating, and that happens organically inside of these communities. So I think one thing is being really authentic and being um, particularly focused on the early community members drives a lot of the value in the future. Um, and we see this as an investor. We see this in your earliest your earliest investors on your cap table. We see it with your earliest customers. You know, this is always the case. And the second thing, which I'll keep a little bit shorter, is that communities can be incredible breeding grounds for great ideas, and they come with a built-in customer base or user base. So some of the biggest and best companies in the world today are either being founded out of some common community. The ideas came together at an event like this or in a Slack somewhere where people are chatting about a problem they have. They're having issues. Right now, it's really buzzy to talk about Web3 and crypto. So there you go. I've mentioned it once in the first 10 minutes. Um, but you know, all of these solutions that are being found, that are being started, are coming out of these discords, right? They're a group of people with a common issue. And many of them will go to zero. As the previous speaker said in the startup world, most companies will fail. So I'm not saying all success will come from that, but when you start something in a community, you have this built-in early um, advocacy group and they can come and they can put you up on a pedestal. And this is why some of the biggest enterprise software projects came out of open source software. You know, ultimately open source software is community-led software development. That's what it is. We didn't call it that a dozen years ago, but it's a community of developers who build a product together and they all do it for free, right? That's the, like, there's no money in it. Um, we're trying to do it with DAOs and other things, but like it's all free. And then those people bring those products into their companies and they start building enterprises around that. In terms of that super helpful context and you give a lot of really great examples, I'm curious about like specific things when it was, I mean, I think you were employee four at WeWork, is that right? 
So in terms of those early days, how did you go from four to 40 members of the WeWork space? I would imagine it was doing, you know, doing stuff that doesn't scale in the early days. Um, are there some of those things that kind of caught on and became part of the culture at WeWork? Yeah, um, we probably don't have enough time for my long-winded answers today, but uh, I will tell you that to this day, WeWork has community managers um, still in a role that is a combination sales, customer support, and sort of operations role. And that was the case from the very beginning. I was plunging toilets while also inviting people for tours while also hosting demo days of startups, right? That like, it didn't matter. You're, and, and I wasn't the only one, to be clear, I'm not like putting myself out. I'm saying that all of the community members, because they all cared about the space, not just the employees, but the actual paying members would do some of these things. You know, if they were the last person there, you didn't have to be an employee. You like rinse the dishes because that's just the right thing to do in the space. So that continued on for the entire company's journey. I was there from four to 4,000 employees and from roughly 200, well, like 100 to 100,000 members globally, right, as paying WeWork members. And the most fascinating thing that happened that we continued on was all of our growth in the first five or six years was community driven. And I mean that not in a buzzwordy way. I will tell you exactly how it worked. It was a plan that still works to this day. We would host events that our members needed. We had a bunch of people that needed design help. We'd invite some really cool designers in to give a talk on how to design software. All of those members would invite one friend each, not because we told them to, but because they wanted to. This is not a top-down thing. And every one of those people that came to visit, out of all those people, roughly half of them had a company of their own, right? Their friend was starting something or worked for someone, and they would invite in that person, and they would come back and they'd take a tour when they needed a space. So they'd show up a month later, 50% of those guests would show up a month later, and out of a tour, we would convert 35% of the time. A 35% conversion rate to a paying product, just like, I don't, like, I, anybody have an idea of a product that sells better? Like, it's, I don't know. But 35% of the time, more importantly, that person on average would bring four to five other members because we sold by the desk, right? So they would take a space for four or five people, their colleagues, their coworkers, their friends. So we were seeing a greater than 100% conversion rate on a tour leading to four or five desks sold. And each one of those desks, by the way, was 500 to $750 a month. And so the LTV on that customer was at minimum $10,000 over you know, the course of the early days that we worked. People would stick around for about a year and a half or so. Some are still there to this day, as crazy as that sounds. Um, but that sort of low CAC, which was effectively zero because we were hosting the event for our paying customers, turned into ten dollars to $12,000 of LTV. That is how, when you build a community, it scales. Now, it does break down at some point. And about five years in, we started opening too many buildings. And I say that because we didn't have enough leads. And we woke up one day and said, wow, we're not going to see enough tours come through to fill those desks. And so when it stopped, when we stopped doing the things that didn't scale, it was about five or six years in, we started building processes, sales teams, marketing plans, things like that. The tour conversion dropped a bit. That's fine. It became a big enterprise. And so at some point, things do have to change in your community. It's not going to work forever, but other great things came out of it. There are still community-focused events. There are still community-led experiences within WeWork to this day, even as a public company. Uh, do you think that 
that community in general continues to be that sort of competitive advantage for WeWork is, you know, obviously lots of competitors now in the in the co-working space um, or in co-working spaces in general as a category. Um, does that community still serve as a competitive advantage, even though all of these other markets probably also claim community as a competitive advantage? I hope no one is tweeting this, but my answer would be no. Uh, so, so look, I, uh, as, a, as a continued shareholder, um, I really hope that continues to be its competitive advantage. But at our height, WeWork was a $47 billion private company, overvalued in many people's eyes, undervalued in some people's eyes, rightly valued in at least one person's eyes. Um, and so, you know, uh, and everybody is entitled to be wrong at least once. The, uh, so, so look, today I just checked before coming on stage because it's a habit as you would imagine, but it's a, it's a 5.9875 something billion dollar company, somewhere around there. Um, but it's public, it's liquid, um, and it produces billions of dollars a year in revenue. There is not a single more pervasive millennial uh, brand around real estate than we work in the world. And I would be shocked to find one in the next five or six years. So the community continues to be a part of it because the brand matters. I walked down the street here with somebody I just met and I was like, we're going to go to Starbucks. And I looked up and I was like, hey, look, WeWork's on the wall there. And he said, I've worked in a WeWork before. And I'm like, great. We don't have to talk about anything more than like, and I'd really prefer not to. Um, but no, the, uh, you know, it's, it's, we talk about WeWork all day long. But I think that community has different versions. And so within the walls of WeWork to this day, there are community-focused and community-led events happening every single day of the week in every single WeWork building, whether they're lunch and learns, whether they're demo days, whether they're recruiting events, and they're all in some way, shape, or form organized by the members themselves, not just the WeWork employees. And so it will continue to be an important part of the WeWork DNA going forward, but it is not anywhere near the same strength of community as there was in the beginning, and that is okay. I can't imagine a community of 250,000 people all feeling as close as we did when there were 47. That just, I mean, I don't know. I don't have that many friends. I heard that there's some crazy stories about something called summer camp. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was? And uh, maybe if you have a crazy story yourself. <laughs> uh, I have crazy stories that I might not be able to share here. Um, anybody here, did anybody here go to a WeWork summer camp? You've probably all seen videos of it or, or seen people talk about it. Um, so WeWork Summer Camp was a social experiment, I'll call it to this day, um, that we hosted. And we started actually with our own employees. So we did our first WeWork uh, Summer Camp, just the employees, when we were about 70 people. And we all went up to somebody's very large house and we actually camped in tents in their backyard. To be fair, it was really nice that I slept outside, but most people stayed in tents. Um, and, and the idea was that you work together all day long. Most people inside of WeWork buildings would spend 12 to 14 hours a day in that building working. And so their best friends and colleagues who are often one and the same, uh, all they did was work together, ate together, drank together, then they'd sleep for a few hours and they do it over again. And summer camp we decided was something that people could actually unplug and get away. And we developed this product and this, off this offering, if you will, this event, where we take people away to the wilderness for three days. We bring in these amazing uh, performers. We had The Weekend and St. Lucia and all these crazy groups come in. Um, and by the way, with The Weekend at the time, it was 
We booked him the week that he had three of the top 10 songs in the world on Billboard. And he was charging over $3 million to perform three so- uh, six songs. And you had to fly him in on like a private jet and other stuff. Like that was his ask, right? That was his rider. Um, we did not pay that much. We paid less than a few hundred thousand dollars. And we offered a little bit of equity, um, which actually I'd have to go back and look. I don't know if that worked out for him or not. At the time, we thought it would work out really well. Um, worked out well for us, though. Um, so, so I think that, you know, summer camp was something that we believed would form lifelong bonds uh, between members in a way that they'd never get inside of the four walls of WeWork. And we thought that WeWork spaces were really fun. Like, don't get me wrong. We, we had beer, we had coffee, we had events, we had food, we had parties and music and all this stuff. But the idea of getting unplugged, having no cell service, like that, that was great timing. Your phone would never ring while you're talking to someone. And you would do things like yoga and meditate. Uh, I did not plan that. Um, yoga and meditating, you'd listen to music and, and you'd have some drinks and you'd eat together. And there were plenty of other activities if you chose to partake in that we did not sponsor. Um, you know, and I can tell you to this day, a couple of my most successful angel investments uh, came out of that experience. Not because we worked next to each other, but because we got to know who that person was. And the previous speaker here was talking about that, about finding the best people. What are their intentions and their values? We have a rule at my fund. It's the only rule where we're allowed to veto somebody else's deal. We have a no asshole rule. And so if one of the partners does not like, uh, did you have a bet on like who would curse first? Is that the, oh, okay. The, uh, uh, so, you know, the bet is if, if one of our partners thinks that somebody is not a good person, we don't back them. It doesn't matter how much I love it, no matter how much I think the market's going to be massive. We have to work with people for decades to come. And so, Things like summer camp uh, enabled us to get to know people in a way that you could never know them from sitting at a desk next to them. And I think it's really important that when you think about developing communities around any topic, that you have time for the personal to rise up. There, like It would be super boring to be in some Slack community where the only thing you do is talk about the business or the topic at hand. That's why Slack starts with a random channel. Um, you know. You need to get to know people on a human level. And that was what summer camp was about. There's plenty of stories about it. Find me later, happy to tell you some of them. Um, but I think, uh, I think for us, the intention was to let people connect with each other in a much more authentic way. Sounds like it worked. Uh, you've been working in community since way before it was cool. Um, now it's all the rage, right? You, you, you said the trigger word Web3 earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that, uh, being someone that's been in the community industry for the last decade? Yeah. So um, it's really fun talking about this stuff again in public. Um, so look, we are investors in a couple of companies that have benefited from this trend. We're typically infrastructure investors. We're, we're often, we're in, a, we're in one company called Bloxroot, another one called Falcon X. They're, they're about infrastructure layers in blockchain. This movement of Web3 and NFTs and somehow that ties to the metaverse, um, I think the most important thing about it is that open source as in community for, community-led software development has existed. As I mentioned, we've done very well in that. We were the earliest investors in Crashalytics and Firebase and MongoDB, which many of these companies that are out there are built on top of. Web3 is this sort of somewhat natural but massive leap where people said, I'm sick of working on projects 
and then handing it over to the man. Sometimes the man were people that started the project, right? They were still a, a part of the community, but ultimately it became this massive corporation if it was successful. And so while I think that there is likely value to be created there, we are in the like V0.1 days of Web3. I think that an insane amount of people are going to lose a lot of money first in this category. And it's not due to there will be bad actors. Again, like no asshole rule. There will be people like that. But I think the bigger thing is we just haven't figured it out. I mean, we, we, there's, a, there's a, a DAO. I don't know how many people are familiar, but a DAO is effectively a community-led investment club is the best way to describe it. You can all put money into something and then it's governed by technology. So you can say if 20% of people vote to take an action, the action happens. In theory, it sounds awesome. But if the vote and the action that you take is, say, to buy a piece of property, um, in most states, that property has to be owned by someone. And it cannot be owned by something in the ether that doesn't exist and can't go to jail if it does something wrong or pay its taxes. Um, and so it, there's still a point where this distributed Web3 world currently stops and it becomes sort of Web2, Web1, like real world. And so my feeling is the concept is great. I think we're going to see some really amazing ideas come out of this. We've already seen one really incredible use case, which are collectibles and art. I think it's amazing. If you are an artist today who makes any kind of medium of art, you can now create a digital piece of art and you can earn on that piece of art over the lifetime of its existence programmatically. If anybody resells that piece of art, you get a piece of that sale. That's amazing. Like it's, it's, um, artists have been screwed for so long, right? You, you sell this piece of art and then you become wildly famous and that piece of art that you sold for $500 is now worth $5 million and the person who sells it makes $4,999,000 and you still live on ramen. Like, and you're like, cool, my art's somewhere and hopefully you sell more art. But so there are great things that are already coming out of this, but it's, it's at its infancy. And so I, my, my caution is, we're looking very hard at it as an investment group. We've invested in a handful of projects. Um, the ones where we've, you know, quote unquote, made money in the venture world is about markups. You don't have to have sold the company yet. Um, you know, the ones where we've made money, where we're up, are infrastructure. They're things that power some of the underlying work here. Um, but super excited about it. And I think it's a very natural evolution of where communities can become much more powerful they can actually take action, they can take collective action, and I think that's pretty exciting. I, I love the idea that right now you're profiting off of the picks and shovels that you're selling to the industry that's you know, building all of the apps and building all of the different um, concepts. How much do you think the general technologist or person working in the tech world should be paying attention to Web3 right now? Because certainly any person in here could spend their entire day trying to keep up and still not even keep up to 10% of the stuff going on in the space right now. Yeah, I mean, look, unless you want to build a product in the Web3 world, I'd spend very little time on it. I mean, I, I'm not saying don't spend it, but you know, 10% of your time, I wouldn't, I guess here's what I'd say. If you're building a company, we talked about this just before this, the foundations and the fundamentals of your startup need to work still, right? So you need to find a way to make money, capture customers, not spend too much to acquire a customer, maintain that customer long enough to make money on them and then turn that into a profit. That's just what companies do. So if you're building a company here, 
I wouldn't take the eye off the ball for any Web3 projects unless it's core to your own thesis. And if it is, I'm not telling you that here. Like you already know that. You're already thinking about it. I do think that what is interesting is to keep up on where are the biggest shifts in technology going to happen. And so this is very similar to 15 years ago, maybe when we started to see the development of OAuth and single sign-on. And there were a lot of companies that waited a long time to support Facebook login and Google login. And they're like, no, we want to keep our walled garden. We can't. The problem is that billions of consumers were already on those platforms. So if you are the friction point, they show up and they're like, I make another account, like screw this amount. Like then they delete the app. Um, so I do think you need to be paying attention to where the technology is going, just where consumers are going. But today, I think the number is like 500,000 people in the world have bought an NFT. I mean, so you do not need to support NFTs unless your business is NFTs, right? Like, and you don't, so I, I just, you're not going to gain a billion users because of those 500,000. So I just, I, I would caution people, and we see this in our own portfolio, um, you know, people come to us and say, hey, we're going to support NFTs or this Web3 concept. I'm like, great, keep it on the roadmap somewhere out there. Keep an eye on it. See if your customers need it. They want it. But I wouldn't begin there. And I surely wouldn't do it when you're first starting. If you ask a single, I've backed 32 companies since uh, going to venture full time. And if you ask any one of those 32 founding teams, they'll tell you the single most common thing I say to them is like, focus and work on one thing and do one thing really well at the seed stage. Um, and the moment that they come up with like, I have two products or I have two features or I have two business lines or I have two customers, I'm like, just focus, do one thing. And so that's not likely the one thing they should be doing. Uh, real quick, last question. Uh, what are you doing now with Flybridge and the community fund and where can people follow what you're, what you're doing now? Yeah. So last thing I'll say on the, on the topic of sort of community before I get into this is when when we view community as a powerful thing is when it dovetails with the underlying uh, set of users or customers, right? We, we don't think that community should exist sort of in a vacuum. And so we have kind of three kinds of businesses that have community forward business models. And if you go on our website at Flybridge, we have a very long document on this, but the abridged version is you can be community led in growth. You can be community led in retention. you be community led in product development. And the product one is, open source software. The community helps to decide what should be in the product. They help to build it. They help to test it. They help to roll it out. Community-led growth is really around um, leveraging a community of people to help create the flywheel of growth and acquisition in a way that you have a more sustainable and more economically viable pattern of growth. So if you've ever spent money on Facebook or Google on ads, you know that the price just goes up. If you're good, and your product makes sense and you grow, your price goes up to acquire people. That's just how the market works. So at some point you can't afford to do it. So having a, having a community helps to control that growth. And the middle one is you know, this idea of community-led retention or customer. And that could be because what you're selling is a community, a membership. We have a portfolio company called Chief. They've grown to 10,000 women across the country. Um, they sell a membership that is the product. And so in that case, that's all over their pitch, right? That's, that is what they do. And there's value to that. For Flybridge, we, someone told me I shouldn't say this because it's like, it sounds, we eat our own dog food. I don't know if that offends anyone. Somebody told me it's not a good saying, but we, we eat our own dog food. We have focused on the idea that for our business, 90% of our success is in seeing the deals, right? We need to meet the founders before they're getting far into the business or we can't invest. 
Um, so we have a concept called network funds. It's a community of operators, of full-time operators who are part-time investors. And the community fund is one of those vehicles where we have a diverse set of operators from across the country, consumer, B2B, enterprise, in Florida, in California, in, in Boston, you name it. We have one guy in Toronto. I promise he'll have more international friends soon. Um, but this community fund concept is to allow us to invest venture dollars into pools of founders that we would not otherwise see. We are four partners. Uh, we are four white partners. Uh, one of us is a woman. Like, I'm just like, you can see it on our site. I'm not telling you anything you can't find. We know that we have blind spots. We know that we won't see all the founders that we need to see all the billion dollar companies. Um, one of my angel portfolio companies, it's a company called Squire. Um, and when they went out to raise their first round of capital, they went to every single venture fund in New York City and every single person said, no, I wrote them their first check at a million dollar cap. For those of you who have raised money recently, there's no such thing as a million dollar cap, I'm pretty sure. Um, it starts at like 20 if you're doing anything. Uh, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It starts lower than that, I hope. But you know, these guys hadn't had a small product and nobody would invest in them. And they're two black founders who just didn't speak the language, didn't have the network. And so they are two of the partners in the community fund now because they now have a company that's worth nearly a billion dollars. So now everybody wants to go to them, right? Everybody wants to have had invested. Um, and so our intention with these is to unlock at the top of the funnel our own ability to see investments that we wouldn't see and also to get the first dollars into people that might not otherwise see them. So we're growing that team, the community fund team. So if it seems like something interesting, feel free to email me, uh, DM me. I am very open. I'm very available. So like, just send me an email, jesse at flybridge.com. You can DM me on Twitter or wherever. Um, but that's super important to us as Flybridge. It's a core part of our thesis. We just closed our new funds and that is half of what we raised our funds on was that pitch. And so we believe in community being a powerful advantage and we, we do eat our own dog food. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on community with this community here. Um, would love to talk to you more and I'm sure people will be reaching out to continue the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thanks so much, Jesse and Matt. Love hearing those stories from longtime friends and sharing your passion for supporting other founders and, and community at its heart. All right, hopefully you, you found it interesting and if you did, please do share it. We love to hear uh, others or help others learn and in sharing, you're going to help others do the same. So sharing is caring and please uh, do spread the love. All right. I uh, also wanted to mention that uh, we we did live stream the uh, the summit back in, in January. So if you were not able to attend in person, you can go back and check out the entire stream of a couple days of, of great content, speakers and thought leaders and, and startups. And you just go to SOTY.link forward slash EST YouTube. It's over on our YouTube channel. And you can go find it over there and, and watch it in its full. Little little weekend weekend project for you. All right. And uh, we're actually at the end of our episode. So appreciate you all for being here today. And remember, if you have a startup idea and you want to get it going, today is the best day to start up. Not tomorrow, not the next day. Today. Get it going. As I mentioned, it's sunny today. It could rain tomorrow. And uh, in doing so, I encourage you to uh, join our community for access to support, expert advice, resources, and everything you need to elevate your startup by simply going to startupofyear.com and applying or going to SOTY.link forward slash apply. Until next time, I'm Frank Gruber and uh, hope you have a great rest of your week. And uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon. 